This episode of Craft Sanity is sponsored by Nostalgems. Nostalgems is running a little giveaway. If you go over to their Facebook page, you can get in the running to win one of 10 Cameo Pendant Kits. Be sure to check out nostalgems.etsy.com to shop the vintage style jewelry collection. And you also can find more information over at nostalgems.co.nz. This episode is also sponsored by Marianne Loverm of Wabi Sabi Brooklyn. See how she turns humble elements into elegant jewelry at wabisabibrooklyn.etsy.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 102nd episode of Craft Sanity. And while most of my interviews are recorded over the telephone or via Skype, I was lucky enough recently to get to spend time in person with one of the most inspiring families I have ever met, the Beer Horse family. They are really making a name for themselves here in West Michigan as being a really talented and interesting and uncompromising artist family. Rick and Brenda Beerhorst have six children. The oldest is Rose, she's 17, and then Pearl's 15, Shepherd is 11, Dove is 9, Grace is 6, and Rain is 5. Wow, what an experience. This house is amazing. They have their art everywhere. On the floor, when I walked in, there was a beautiful rag rug crocheted by Rose, just lovely. And they have like little, you know, they have their little little pieces of art, Rick's oil paintings on the wall and hooked rugs by Brenda that are right inside the door where she does her work. And the kids have little drawings that they've made, the youngest ones. Just such an inspiring experience. Now, these are people that don't work for the man. They don't have corporate paychecks. They don't have any of the security things that we go to work for. The reasons that we stay in our jobs longer than maybe we should and don't do the things we really feel we're meant to do and called to do the thing about the beer horse is I met them at a time when I was nervous about leaving my job because I've been continuously employed since age 14 when I worked at Little Caesars 13 and Grossbeck in Fraser, <laughs> making pizzas. And then I worked in retail and then I started working for newspapers at age 17. I've been continually employed by newspapers since I was 17. And so for me to walk away from that paycheck was really very scary. But then I met the beer horse and... I wrote a story about them for the paper. I went back later to record a podcast with them to get into a little more detail about their life and lifestyle and what it's like to raise a family of artists in the Midwest. And I think you're going to be inspired. Um, you may not you know, decide to unschool your children, quit your day jobs, and start raising chickens in your backyard, but maybe you will. You know, And I think that even if we're not all going to go out and live the exact same life or the same way that they're living. I think we all can take something away from this story. Oh, one thing I got I do need to tell you. You're going to hear some weird blips at certain points in this. My husband, for some reason, decided instead of a bleep, there would be a blip. <laughs> There's a couple points in the podcast where there is some strong language is used. And, I mean, no offense, and I'm not trying to censor anyone, but I am well aware of the fact that there are a lot of moms out there and dads, um, mostly moms that I hear from, who listen to the podcast with uh, little budding artists in the room. So I, 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 I really want to make sure that if they learn some new vocab words, it's not from Craft Sanity. <laughs> so there was no technical issue. If you hear a little blip, uh, substitute in your favorite swear word. 
because that's what it was. And there's just a couple of those, but just want to let you know before you're wondering what the heck is going on. So anyway, with that said, let's get to the story. Well, my name is Rick Beerhorst, and I'm the father of the Beerhorst family. And the Beerhorst family is a little bit like the Flying Willendas. That's what I've been using lately because I think people understand, you know, the acrobat family. They're they're all acrobats. It's it's a family, but they're also practicing the routines. There's a discipline that goes with it. Mm-hmm. So when they perform, there's this kind of knit togetherness of a family. But also there's this kind of performance, there's this public thing that's happening. And I think increasingly with the Beerworth family, there's a public persona that's beginning to happen. And I think it's happening naturally. It's not exactly the Jackson 5. <laughs> but there is this sort of public place and private place. And we're learning how to do that in a healthy way. And so was that a conscious decision that you and Brenda made back when you guys met and decided that you were going to partner for life. Yeah, I think there were, because there were there were things that we set in place back then when we decided not to put the kids in school, when we decided to keep making art, when we decided to go ahead and go underneath the poverty line and kind of underneath the radar. Now, those were decisions that have brought us to this place now where there's this peculiarity that has set us in a place that's really different than where a lot of people are. And... Um, you know, whether that's good or bad, you know, it's, it's, at least it's different. Well, Brenda, why don't you tell me a little bit about where you were in life when you met? I was back in school at Aquinas getting a BFA in painting after being out of school a couple years. I had gone previously to Kendall and gotten associates in illustration. And I was really struggling trying to figure out how to make art a way of life. And part of my venture was to go back to school because being out of school was really hard. (laughs) After I graduated the first time, I got some really disappointing first-type jobs. And Like what? What were you doing? I did screen printing. Okay. And not, you know, artsy screen printing now. It was like uniforms for baseball teams okay numbers okay. <laughs> logos for beer taverns that sponsored baseball teams and another job i did was typesetting that was back before computers when type was set photographically and dark rooms were still used to print logos and stuff and it was um those kind of jobs weren't super satisfying for me because I wanted to use color and a lot of the times it was mostly just black and white images if I got to do an image at all. So when I met Rick I was pretty excited about meeting an artist that was committed to working as an artist. In fact I think Rick remembers me telling him how I was interested in art and he felt pretty confident that he could um, impress me. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't know he was an artist right away? Or? Yeah, I did. Oh, we yeah. had some common friends and even had met a couple times before we clicked or whatever. I really wanted to be an artist, but yeah, I was sort of coming to this point where I didn't really know how to do that. And where, Rick, were you still in school? I had finished college and I had moved to New York 
and then decided I wanted to go to grad school. So I had to come back to Grand Rapids to pick up a few unfinished classes so I could actually graduate from Calvin. And it was in that intermediate time of coming back to town that I met Brenda. (laughs) Okay. And that this relationship really ignited because I think we were both after something. And I think that was, we really wanted, like, to really pursue making art, you know, and make make a life out of that more than you know, teaching or working the job you hate and, you know, and dreaming someday maybe. I mean, we really wanted to just, like, plunge right in, and we really did that from the beginning. And there were four years before the kids came along, so we were doing stuff like, you know, making paintings for restaurants and making paintings for homeless shelters before any galleries were interested. You know, we were kind of really committed to trying to make art where we could. When you make art for a homeless shelter, do you get paid? No, we didn't. But okay. we we did get an NEA grant that year. <laughs> to do that? Yeah, well, no, not oh. really. It was just I had applied for an artist grant, and it was you know super competitive. I got, actually, NEA Artist Fellowship that year. And That's it just awesome. serendipitously, you know, I was also volunteering to make paintings for places like God's Kitchen and stuff, which, no, there wasn't any money there. It was just like... Places that were ugly and obviously needed art. And it was in a pretty provocative environment, you know. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. kind of like, I kind of I romanticized like Van Gogh working with the coal miners, you know. It was <laughs> sort of like my potato eater, you know, phase. Yeah. And I learned a lot during yeah. that time. And these, yeah, and it really, and, it, and working with the homeless too really opened my eyes to like people living in this kind of paradox that still like draws me in. It's like people living on the brink and it looks like disaster. And yet there's this like intense, potent community springing up with these people that I was jealous of. Like they're hanging out, you know, sharing cigarettes and like in a pint. And it's like they're laughing and it's like, okay, I know this looks like the bottom of the barrel, but why are they having a good time? It was puzzling. And I know it wasn't all a good time. I know there were some sob stories there too. But there was something there that seemed real and potent. Right, right. And and less impersonal than getting in your car in suburbia and driving away, right. not knowing your neighbor. Right. You know these people knew their neighbors. Yeah, yeah, because they're living with their. I mean, they're yeah. literally living together. Right. Yeah. yeah, almost like in an intentional community of sorts. Yeah. So it sounds like that influenced your early work. It did. It did because I got a taste for what that could be like. <clears throat> or even you know it's funny because we l- moved into a neighborhood that was decidedly ethnic and not white, and you go to the grocery store. And people are like high-fiving, and it's like, okay, everybody knows each other here? This is not like the Myers that I went shopping with my mom on 28th right. Street. It's like, you know, you push your cart. and But here it's like everybody seemed to know each other. And there was something of that kind of inner city, kind of tough, you know, it looked like a scary neighborhood. But people, again, they seemed to know each other, and right. that was attractive to us. Now, you, you knew each other for about, you dated for about three years, I think, mm-hmm. before you got yeah. married. Mm-hmm. yeah. People will advise couples to talk about all the details, like how are you going to raise kids and what are you going to do? Is someone going to work? Is someone going to stay home? All these big questions. Is that how you, did you guys set this plan into motion way back then of how you were going to approach life? I don't recall that. Do you? Well, we, I remember we had pre-marriage therapy where we worked on more personal issues we worked on personal issues we were in counseling together yeah Yeah. before we got married right but i don't think we were very good planners i think we just kind of fell in love yeah and set off on a journey Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of this i think we were following hunches in the beginning that 
which we still do a lot of, where there's not a lot of cerebral, like, this is what it's going to look like, but we kind of have a hunch, like, you know, let's go without a car, or let's, I think we should move to New York, you know, there's, like, hunches we get, or... Yeah, well, you know, we we do have a strong faith, and I think that we really feel it calling from God in certain areas, and... A lot of times, things like moving to New York was really prayerful. I mean, it wasn't just a hunch. We'd, we'd follow a hunch prayerfully. Right. Well, I guess saying hunch is a way is another way of saying... Sometimes there's, there's problems with By rhetoric. Friend. Like, we listen to the voice of God. Like, as soon as you start using that kind of language, a lot of people just shut off because that just sounds crazy <laughs> or it sounds religious. I say following hunches, following intuitions, because that is more palatable. Mm-hmm. You know, right? But it's, it's not all like logical. <laughs> you know. But for you guys, it's deeper than that. It's not just you get an idea and look. Yeah, you know, move I away. think at the bottom of it, we do believe that there's a personable God who speaks to us. Moses had a burning bush. We have our own types of burning bushes. That is, frankly, there's a mystical kind of thing mm-hmm. where we have a sense of we're going to do this. And somehow it's going to it's going to work out. Right. In the New York thing, because I tend to lag behind Rick and his ideas, he said, "Let's work this so you feel good about it." Because I'm a real homebody, and I to move to New York at first might sound crazy, but he he said we're going to work we're going to pray about this and think about it for three years, or we're going to set the date to move in three years. So I remember thinking. Okay, Lord, if you want to change our mind, you've got three years to do it. And I felt really at peace about that because I felt like, if anything, I felt kind of like, no, this is too crazy to move the family. Six kids into an apartment in New York. But we did it. And, you know, we had three years where we thought about it and prayed about it and got ready for it. And all along the way, there was no, like, big block. Nobody said to us. Do you really think you should do that? Nobody did. I don't remember it. No, it was general, uh, the the enthusiasm for it. Like, God, you know, go for it. And if people thought that, they didn't tell us. (laughs) Maybe they said that after we left. (laughs) That was crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Those beer horses. (laughs) Well, this this set the scene a little bit for people who are just learning about your family through this podcast. This describe your way of life right now for the folks at home. It's not typical right? for what you see around these parts here. So why don't you just describe a little right. bit about okay. how you're living? Well, Dad doesn't go off to work. Mom doesn't go off to work. There's a sense of Dad gets up really early in the morning and is in the studio and then comes back in for breakfast. But So what Mom and Dad do is within you know, eyesight and earshot of the kids, the, the whole family is in it together from early morning till late at night. We try to do things together. We went to the see the Woody Guthrie show at Spectrum last night. We all went down on bikes, you know. We try to do as much as, as things as we can together. We live on the sale of our art, which out of the artists that call themselves artists, one half of one half percent make a living as artists in the United States. So we're one half of 1%. I can't remember where I heard that, but I read that recently. So it's like, you know, playing for the NBA or something. So in a sense, that's an unusual thing that we're actually making a living as artists. Some people might say we're not quite making a living. (laughs) 
Well, what kind but of we living are supporting is it? ourselves? What kind of living? Is I mean, it and you can describe that any way you feel comfortable. Well, um, we pay our bills and our mortgage, and we try to buy really healthy food for the kids. That's really what where our money goes. Otherwise, our life is really rich in activities together as a family. We work together a lot on projects, things like picking fruit. We pick wild blackberries. Um, we glean cherries off neighbors' cherry trees in their yards, and then we all work together um, to can them. You know, I mean, when I say all, I don't mean all six, six kids always, but couple here and there right. do different things. And sometimes we do projects where we're all working together. And you also have this tremendous garden. Yes. Your backyard is essentially yeah. our, our backyard <laughs> is a food garden with some flowers, and we have chickens. And at different times, we've had other things like we raised rabbits for a while. Mm-hmm. And it's an experiment in herb, what's called urban homesteading, mm-hmm. which I read about when we were the first year we were married. There was this house in Southern California, and it was an extension from one of the universities. Berkeley. Yeah, it was Berkeley, and they created this whole urban garden on a city lot, and they had, like, a trout pond and bees bees over the trout pond. The dead bees fell in, the fish ate that, and they used the gray water, and it was, I read this, (laughs) and I was, it was like, oh my God, I I love this, I didn't know this was possible, and it haunted me for years, and I think it's one of those things where... I saw what I wanted to do. It's like I want to go to Oz, you know. That's right, where. right. And so, um, because there's this, I think sustainability that was at the very kind of epoch of this country's kind of inauguration that mm-hmm. I think's buried, really embedded, really deep within us, and we've really gotten far from that. You know, going to Kroger and all the Saran wrapper ripping through and right. all the fragility of that. I think that we block out most of the time, but and I think there's this moving back that we want to do to kind of recapture some of what our grandpas and grandmas knew how to do. I mean, my dad grew up in the Netherlands, and they had rabbits, and after they processed the rabbits, they used the the skins, and they made mittens for the kids for those cold, you know, winters by the North Sea. I mean, there was this you know, they, there's, they had apples in the cellar, you know. That, there were just things that they knew to do to prepare and I think for us, we've tried to return to some of that. So, yes, we're artists, and we spend a lot of time. But when the blackberries are in, I might not be able to get much more than a half an hour in the studio because there's all these blackberries or there's strawberries we're going to try to turn into preserves, mm-hmm. you know. So we try to tap into some of those natural rhythms, which we're also excited about. We, we put up maple syrup from our maple tree out front. So, again, when... Our one maple tree. <laughs> that we made about three quarts of syrup from, and also our neighbor's tree. So when that's coming in, again, it sort of disrupts your life for a while, but you also kind of can be satisfied to know, wow, you know, people did this for hundreds of years. You know, the Native Americans made maple syrup in this very, you know, place 200, 300, 1,000 years ago. And it's that satisfying to tap into that, you know? Well, and there's something wonderful about being able to be self-sufficient, too, which is something that you you, and your family is much closer to than the people that are pulling into the grocery store. And children who are growing up not realizing what you can grow from a seed, 
Right. You know, and so that's... I'm still learning things I never realized. You know, that chickens lay eggs in the summer and the winter, they pretty much quit. I just assumed they laid them all year round because the <laughs> eggs are always in the grocery right. store. And the same thing with milk. We had a cow share and milk is, is like, you know, overflowing in the spring. Gallons and gallons, you know, our milk share would be more milk in the spring and then as winter went on it would be less milk there's seasonal qualities of life that we've totally cut off from our life we have no idea of these natural rhythms and i think that when you're more tuned into things things like okay we're having a lean time right now you know maybe it's financially well you know there's that rhythm of life that you kind of get in tune with when you work with things like animals and the earth and gardening. And so you have to make room. Like right now, there's some media attention. It's almost kind of like the sap is running. And yes, so it's like, okay, make exactly. some room for Jennifer. Make room for right. her and enjoy this and go with it because this is a season for this. And you don't really know what that's about, but you kind of can kind of trust that, okay, well, we'll, you know, boil this down and put it in bottles and later on we'll need it, you know. And I think... There's an industrialization, okay? It's like Henry Ford, he figured out how to make those Model Ts, and he was really good at it. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. And so everybody got a car, and then everybody got two cars. And then, you know, in 1978, the Beer Horse family had three cars when I grew up. You know, you mean, Uncle Rolf, you have three cars? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it, but so, but there's, in, as efficient as it was, there was, there's a lot of problems with it. It's sort of like we got used to, I think, maybe a standard of living, and we ended up being disconnected with these rhythms that Brenda's yeah. talking about. You just bought things. You didn't really think about where they came from or how they were made. And so when you guys got married, did you settle in West Michigan? We settled in to West Michigan, and I think felt some already some deep ties to like this city. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I came out of graduate school and Brenda and I got married, the first thing I did is I spent, I mean, not only was I in those almost shelters, but I spent a lot of time drawing mm -hmm. the city and doing paintings, plein air paintings, and having conversations with people on the street. And I was like looking at the city from all these different angles. And really, frankly, I mean, falling in love with Brenda, but re-falling in love with Grand Rapids as a city and sensing the potential mm -hmm. that the city had, which I'm still, from time to time, I kind of get re-enamored with, like, wow, you know, what could we do with this city? You know, what could happen? What wants to happen here? So when you guys started your family, and, and um, we have Rose here, who is the oldest, and we'll, I'm really interested in your perspective. But before we get to that, when you know Rose was born, that would have been what year? 92. Did you decide right away that you were going to educate Rose? I remember when she was fairly young and maybe still a baby before toddling, I decided, well, I decided to look into homeschooling seriously because I knew we were living in a rough neighborhood and I didn't want to send the, my kid there and I knew we weren't going to be able to really deal with paying a tuition at a private mm -hmm. school or I wasn't really interested in driving 20 minutes across town to some other magnet school or something. Another factor was I hated school. I was a good student, but I had a really hard time with it. Rick and I both talked about that, too, and 
there's a lot of problems with schools that we shared. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a good student, but did horribly socially. And Rick was, was not sm- a good student. <laughs> I was not a good student. I because I tended to just. I never did the homework because I didn't want to. I ended up making duck decoys and bow and arrows and At rambling home. around out in the fields and doing yeah. drawings of birds. You know, I was being, you know, the little James Audubon, which really was a good... I was a student of nature, just like right. Leonardo da Vinci when he was a kid. Right. But school was boring to me because it was all sort of like laid out, like, here's your assignment, do this. I wouldn't have had any rhetoric for it when I was a kid. I just knew I didn't like school, but I was interested in learning. So it sounded like that was a pretty mutual decision for the two of you. You easily could agree on. Yeah. Right. I remember when Rose was very young and we went to a a homeschool conference. One of the first ones we went to, by chance, was the Moors, um, an elderly couple at that time that sort of pioneered um, homeschooling. And they had books out that were pretty radical. And I didn't realize how radical they were because I was just learning about homeschooling. So I naively went to a fairly radical (laughs) homeschooling. They had books out like Better Late Than Early. And that was about reading. And their idea was just let the kids learn reading when they feel like it. If wow, and that is radical. When it's 14, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and they talked about a 14-year-old that finally learned to read, and he just skipped all the baby books and went to reading college level. So, but, you know, when he was 13, could he read? No. And that was pretty radical to me. And I remember thinking, reading their books, and it, the whole idea was fairly new, so I think in the beginning, these seeds were planted for the direction of our family. Even though um, we call we unschool now, I wouldn't have known what that was when Rose was a baby. And I think in the beginning of homeschooling, when Rose and Pearl, our two oldest, were like six and four, I did try to do a more school-at-home approach, which always lasted like the first week of September and and totally (laughs) disintegrated after like four days. What would that be like? What would be that? Oh, you know, putting up the ABCs along the the wall, getting out big pencils to try to get them to trace the letters and. We'll set times. We're going to, every morning at nine 30, we're going to work on, you know, your letters, and we're going to work on getting them some math, and so they get those basics that they need to have, which were all well-intentioned, and of course, the in-laws are starting to breathe some sighs of relief that we're finally getting serious about it, but it, like, yeah, it seemed like it quickly disintegrated, because it just didn't, it felt forced, it didn't, even though it made sort we of sense. We would all end up get frustrated. They'd draw like one A, and then they'd start drawing fairies or flowers, you know, and I'd try to get them back focused and they'd really like respond to some thing that wasn't, I hadn't planned. And and then I'd get all frustrated trying to get them refocused. And it was kind of a disaster. I know a lot of people can do it really well. It just didn't work. We have good friends that are real resolute about it and they have those set times and they have their prayer times and then they do their, social studies, and it just seems to go along like a 
freaking Swiss watch. And it's so you just go, well, God, guys, it works. I mean, right. it works. Right. You know, and I think that's part of what we're having to continually remember is that it's like what works for you. You know, again, it's not building. We're not building model T's here. Right. We're we're people, very unique, very peculiar, and that's the way it should be. But you have to be comfortable with yourself to be different, because you're going to handle a lot of misunderstanding. People are going to go, "That's really weird. Why are you doing that?" Because that's say threatening. That to you, though? Yeah, you get it from time to time where people feel very threatened because your way of life. If you decide not to have a car. Or if you don't have medical insurance, people get really uncomfortable with that because it's immediately sort of, it throws them, it's sort of the balls knocked into their court. Well, we have this because, and they have to run through all the reasons why they've made these sacrifices to have these things that give them a certain amount of comfort, Mm -hmm. you know, whether real or just projected. So I think if you are living a life that's very different, um, it causes people some consternation. Because unless they're just very well grounded and they can, oh, well, that's great. You're different. We're different. You know, (laughs) you're okay. I'm okay. But generally, a lot of people don't have that kind of groundedness and they're very thrown off if people are different and have different values. Uh, On the other side of that, we do give a lot of people encouragement just to be, to try things. I mean, our lifestyle has gives them permission in a sense to say, you know, I have been thinking about homeschooling. You know, my 10-year-old is really not liking school, and you know, I have thought of it, you know, and you guys seem to be doing it. So they feel kind of like this sense of encouragement by seeing some of these ideas they've flitted around in their brain actually being pulled off in our home. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they thought of having a garden in the back or chickens or they're sick of their car. Can you really get along without one, you know, those kind of things? Well, part of it is, too, I think what happens a lot is people want to do something. They want to have a rock band. But you know what? They're not Bruce Springsteen. And they feel immediately like, I'm just not talented enough. Or I'm not, I don't have enough money saved. Or there's always this disqualification, I Mm -hmm. think. And I think one of the things we've tried to do is sort of like, again, this is like, when it was time to feed 5,000 people, Jesus didn't have a catering company. He said, okay, what do we have? I've got this lunch. You know, so there's this kid who has a lunch, and right. he's got three three loaves, whatever, two fish and three loaves. And they start with that, and they feed the multitude. And that's been a really operative kind of haunting story for me, because it's like, okay, well, what do you have? You're not Bruce Springsteen, but you do know how to play C, G, and, uh, you know, D. You, need, you got three chords, you know, and you've got some life stories, so write songs, play the crummy guitar you have, get over your friend who he's learning to play accordion, and start there, because everybody started somewhere, and I think one of the things happens in the way, you know, the blessing and curse of the media is we're presented with all these incredible, very polished things mm-hmm. that immediately become commodities, and we're a lot of times, we don't have the courage to venture forward, because these things are so intimidatingly you know, presented so perfect. Everything's been edited out. Like this podcast, you're going to edit out all our (laughs) stupid uh, things you say, (laughs) and make us sound really great. Well, of course we want to sound good, but 
the the downside of that is the intimidation that people feel. And so what? Mm-hmm. So when people do meet us and get to know us and really start to enter in, they see our flaws and they see me lose my temper and then have to apologize. That those flounderings actually are give them permission. Like, oh my God, he's kind of a f- up too, you know? <laughs> right? <laughs> no, it does give people permission. So I think that's really well said. So I know Rose has been very patient here (laughs) listening to all this. And I'm interested in giving people at home a sense of what a typical day is living here in this and being with this family. And, you know, you're unschooled Mm -hmm. and you're 17 now. Yeah, I'm 17. Okay. So why don't you tell me, Rose, what a typical day is like? Well, I usually get up around 830 and I go for a run. And then we all have breakfast together, which is usually eggs or waffles or pancakes or granola. And then after that, um, I might take my bike to the library and get out a bunch of books on tape and and books and cookbooks and stuff. And then I'll go in my room and listen to a book on tape and sew and make crafts, crochet, stuff like that. And it might be my dishes day because we all take turns doing stuff like that. So I might have to do the dishes for breakfast and lunch and... Call Roshaw, we'll hang out, we'll go for a walk or watch a movie. I don't know, it's just kind of pretty casual, organic, just do stuff. <laughs> well, it sounds like it leaves you a lot of creative time. Exactly. Sure. And you said, I know when I interviewed you for the story I wrote for the local paper here, you talked about, I know one of the things that was striking to me is you said that growing up in this family has really allowed you to focus on being an artist and yeah. focus on what you're interested in. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because, well, other kids in this neighborhood, most of them mm-hmm. are going to school. You yeah. know, uh, we're in summertime now, of course, but um, during mm-hmm. the school year, they're going to school. Now, when they go off to school, is your routine pretty much the same, or do you have, is it more structured during the school year? Or No. No, okay. No, it's basically the same all year. But, I mean, what I really do in my learning process is I go through phases like, when I was maybe, like, eight years old, I was really into Indians, so Dad helped me make a bow and arrow, and I read everything I could about them, and, you know, I had a phase where I was really interested in dogs, and so I read a bunch of books about all the different breeds. <laughs> we went to and, dog shows. Yeah, and uh, two years ago, I had a phase where I was really interested in holistic healing and natural medicine, so I read a bunch of books about wild foraging and, um, you know, the different uses for all these different herbs and just basically being healthy, and that was really cool. And now I'm just trying to figure out what kind of art I want to make and trying to, um, you know, work online with Flickr and Etsy and just kind of work with. She's starting a business, basically. Yeah, yeah to start your, because you, you you sell your work. Um, yeah, I And we can talk work. a little bit, that uh, the whole family, you sell your work together. And mm-hmm. then, um, so at this point, I know you talked a little bit about in our previous conversation about, um, deciding whether or not, you know, art school is something that yeah. you want to pursue. Now, is that, I imagine that that's a tough decision because you've it had is, all this really freedom is. and you don't, ha- you never had to conform to a structure yeah. in art school as your parents know, um, going through art school or any kind of schooling, their structure. Yeah. Does that give you pause um, when you think about the options? It does. It really does. I'm, I mean, I'm 
I am really thinking about it hard. I don't really know what I'm going to choose yet. I mean, I have had a couple of structural situations. I did artworks in the summer program, and I've had mixed experiences. Mm-hmm. Some has been really good, and some hasn't been so good. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to write it off. I'm sure school has got some really good things to offer. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I dabble in the arts myself, but I... You know, I have a bachelor's in journalism and a master's in English. Mm-hmm. Not very artistic. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to go back for fiber art, but then I thought, no, English is more practical, which right. is crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. But how important do you think it is? The two of you have art degrees. Mm-hmm. You're making art. So when people say, when you say we're artists and we're raising our children as artists, you have some street cred in the sense that you have the degrees. How important do you think that's going to be for your kids to have degrees to be taken seriously as artists? Frankly, we took that route because we didn't really think there was another. Mm-hmm. That's true. Whereas Rose is growing up realizing there are alternatives. I think that Rosie's struggle is a good struggle and it's one she's going to have to work through. But I think, frankly, I think that college is, college and even graduate school, these are, these are sort of tracks people don't even think about it very much it's just like a given in our culture there's an expectation it's a cultural convention frankly that i don't think works very well and if you talk to people that are actually hiring people they're looking for people who have real experience Mm -hmm. more than they're looking for degrees because we're in a time and a climate that they don't they can't afford to waste their time and energy training people and and kind of coddling them. They need people that can just get right in there and do stuff. And also, you know, there's a lot of stories out there like and I can't remember the name of the woman who built the Esprit company, but she didn't go to fashion. She didn't go to the Fashion Institute, and she said that I'm so glad I didn't because I didn't know all the rules I was breaking, and those rules I broke was what made my company so, you know, unique. Mm-hmm. And rose to the top because I wasn't like everybody else. I so, think we, Rick and I grew up with the expectation to go to college. Yeah. That was our parents didn't go, and so the expectation was for us to have a better life than they did. We needed a degree. Well, being the kind of people that Rick and I are, we we got art degrees, and they're not very practical in the real world. And so there's a lot of frustration, I think, and because that expectation that if you have a college degree, you're just going to be set for life and you're going to be making money. That's what our parents expected from us, but we couldn't, it didn't happen. And I think a lot of times that when for more and more people, they're finding out that, you know, the degree they pick when they're just like, you know, 19 is isn't really what they wanted or they didn't even know. Mm-hmm. And it's expensive. Mm-hmm. And very it's expensive. so expensive. It's a very yeah. expensive floundering time. Mm-hmm. So our advice to young people is, what do you want to do? Find out how you can do it. Mm-hmm. Find someone who does it good. Work with them. And work with them. Apprenticeships. I think, I think that sort of get-a-degree solution is, is just... Uh, it's just a very narrow bandwidth. It's kind of a narrow, narrow way of thinking. And I think that's just part of, you know, part of the thing to talk about and think about. And even how you interface with academia, it doesn't have to be, you know, you just march through and get your degree. I mean, you can 
go in and come out, go in and come out, <laughs> you know, um, sit in on classes, make friends with professors. I think, you know, again, a creative, a creative approach to, to learning is a really good one. You can't write off, you know, the academic environment, but it's, it's not the only place. Do you think it's open doors for you as a painter? Frankly, no. If I was trying to be one of those people seated in an academic position so that I drew a paycheck from Kendall College or the University of Illinois and I was in, had a tenure there, yeah. But if you're an artist pressed into the marketplace, the thing that makes that, that um, opens doors for you is good work. Right. And being a nice person. That helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be a jerk with a horrible but, it, but if you're polite and you're generally <laughs> right. self-effacing and, you know, people are going to want to purchase your work. They're going to want to show your work. They're going to want you on board. Uh, it doesn't matter where you went to school or whether you went to school. It's, do you, you know, can you do this? The do you have the chops? The thing about school does, you can connect with people. Maybe you wouldn't have it in your sphere of life a lot of people you know still are from people people you met in college yes so were you at you were at kelvin right i was at kelvin and the university of illinois okay and so your decision to go on at that point has your thinking changed about because you went on for a graduate level i did a graduate program and um, my thinking has changed a lot since then yeah because again honestly at 49 years old and um, having done museum shows, and um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not in the medical field, so I can't really speak with any expertise about that. It's a different field, right? Right. But um, in my field, um, really, it is the collegiate thing. The degrees have not opened the doors for me. Mm-hmm. It's been, I think, really, it's like, you know, why do we buy Stephen King's novels? What school did he go to? Who knows? Who cares? In fact, the reason we buy is because Stephen gets up in the morning, he goes and he writes right. every day. Right. That's why we buy his books. He's good. He's good. Right. And he was good before he went to school. I think he went to school somewhere. Yeah. yeah. He's for a while. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's a great point. I know that I probably, if I'm going to have surgery, I think I do want someone that went to uh, <laughs> school for it. Yeah. Um, but if I'm going to buy a painting, I don't care if the person went to school or not. If, if this art speaks to me, mm-hmm. then I'm going to be inspired to save up my money and, and try to buy it, you know. Right. Um, but do you think that this opens the oppor- the door for um, maybe the person that has the 9-to-5 job that they hate, they wanted to go to art school but didn't, or they wanted to be an artist but did the thing that they can make money at, have chosen to go, with, you know, with the route that some would say was the easier route in the mm-hmm. sense that you deny your dreams and that's the hard part, but right. you can afford two and a half cars and yeah. a big house in the suburbs. And yeah. it, does this open the door, though, the economic climate we're in and having more and more people trying to get back to basics? Do you think that sets the groundwork for people to finally start living the life they, they wish they would have started living 20 years ago? I think so. This is a great time right now we're in. I mean, we have a great opportunity because things are falling apart. You know, we're in ruins. And that can look terrible. It can look intimidating and scary. But when you realize, no, we build things out of ruins. You know, when something falls apart, that's when you make discoveries. You know, Mm -hmm. you realize, oh... I can play the guitar with four strings instead of six, and I, if I tune it into this chord, I got all these new possibilities. I, I can write songs I never wrote before, 
you know, and I thought at first, doggone, I can't afford to get new strings. Now I'm working with four strings and realize I opened up this whole, I mean, as a metaphor, the person who lost his job at Steelcase and suddenly has time on his hands and he starts looking around and realizing, gosh, you know, I always used to love to journal and I, you know, suddenly I have time and I return to that. And you hear stories. I mean, we go down to the farmer's market and the guy who's making you know, cutting boards out of all these exotic woods that he gets as, you know, the throwaways from wherever American seating. And you find out, well, yeah, he was laid off and then man, he's having a blast, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. It it does. um, It is amazing to see what happens when people initially, you know, the layoff or something happens, they lose their job. And then to see the door that opens um, when the sun rises the next day and they realize, (laughs) actually, this is not as bad as I thought. This is awesome. Brother lost his job and he says, you know, life's been really good lately. I'm really enjoying the family a lot. He got laid off. Yeah. About a month ago. You guys have made a lot of choices, you know, like your decision to not have a car. Mm-hmm. Now, I, and, and we need to tell people about what you traded your car for okay. when you were living in New York. When we were living in New York, we really needed a dining room table. And we had a car, a station wagon we had brought from Grand Rapids, drove over, that we kept getting tickets on because the parking there, you have to keep moving your cars. Even uh, though we never used our car, we had to move it every day. because. So we were collecting a lot of expensive parking tickets. And we had some friends who their dream was to have a car. They could leave the city on the weekends and you know, drive upstate. <laughs> so, so and they had this big table because they got they lost their loft in Soho. They had to move in this little apartment in our building. They had this big table that didn't fit anymore. So, you know, we got the table. They got the car, which they eventually realized after a few months they didn't want either. Now, but was this an even trade or was there money involved? No, there was there was no money involved, and no, they definitely got. A lot more bang for the buck, I guess, or whatever. Or not, if they got tickets, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Financially, yeah. They probably got tickets and decided they couldn't. Well, the irony, or maybe the thing funny was they ended up trading or selling the car to a mechanic in the or a, a carpenter in the building who who's probably to this day still used because he's also a mechanic. And and, his wife was crapped. She did craft shows. Right, oh, did so craft so shows. It was perfect for them. Yes, it was it perfect was a, for them. What, what kind of a car was those? It was a station wagon. Station wagon, yeah. So yeah. it just changed ownership changed within the building. Changed ownership, yeah. And so we ended up, we have this dining room table, which we have a sense put even a bigger top on. And it's really symbolic because a lot happens around that table. When you don't have a car, you suddenly, you're sort of like a person in a wheelchair. It's like you're you're not, you can't go out like people go out. But again, the blessing of that is you're kind of, you're hunkered down a little bit more and you, you, since you're not moving around so much, you can become, your roots go deeper and you, there's this intensity that you can bring to things because you're not flying all over the place. You're a little bit more settled and focused. Yeah. I just want to say that when, when we had a car, a lot of my creative energy went to go buy craft materials that I never used because yeah. whenever I'd kind of get this creative urge, I'd go, Oh yeah, I should run over to Michael's and get some beads where, you know, <laughs> and so that I'd have all these craft supplies that I never used because my energy, my creative energy, I think was accumulating products, you know, like craft supplies. materials and supplies and not actually using them. And now that I'm home, I'm like, okay, 
let's just use what we have. You right, because it's too much of a pain to try what to What can hit. I make with this? I have lots of wool, and we make all kinds of things with my mm-hmm. rug hooking wool. The kids use it for button bracelets, and we make little stuffed animals with it. Yeah. Well, and, go ahead, Rose. Well, um... Uh, there was a point where I just could not afford yarn anymore because it's expensive. You know, I did not want to buy the crappy acrylic yarn because I was making hats at the time and stuff, and I was just like, well, I can't keep up with this, you know? So I started crocheting with fabric, and not, and I started making hats and clothes. Oh, you made hats? Yeah, out of cotton cotton and t-shirts and all kinds of fabric. And then, you know, I got, I was really excited about it, so I started making rag rugs. And they're beautiful. Your rugs are absolutely you know, beautiful. You've always got a little extra fabric or mm-hmm. an ugly shirt, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's just a good alternative than the, you know, $7 wool yarn. Yeah, you just cut it in strips and start crocheting with it. Well, and the beauty of that, too, is that you're actually spending time creating. I almost did that two nights ago. I was sitting down. I was supposed to be making the looper pot holders to prepare mm-hmm. for the segment, and I'm mm-hmm. like, I only have two looms to make mm-hmm. pot holders. Yeah. Now, one is enough. And I'm like, well, I have to show this in progress. And I had lost sight completely that this was not about how to make looper pot holes. It was pot holders. It was about how to make the little loopers. Right. Right. So I had almost, I grabbed my keys. I'm like, okay, girls, we're going to go over to Joanne's. And then I'm, I'm going out the door and I'm like, what am I doing? I don't need three of these. And this is just like this distraction. Right. And I would leave and then I went back I, and I'm just like, I wouldn't even get anything done, you know, because then you come back. All the time. You're too tired. All the time. It's bedtime for the kids. I mean, it's, you lose all the creative time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like um, getting rid of the car. If people are struggling creatively, <laughs> perhaps. For me, it was you know. a big thing for, I can notice the difference. For Rick, he's very motivated and very, you know, task kind of person. I'm easily distracted and I can, it was hard for me. Well, the other important part of this thing too is this, this new kind of thing that's developed is we're finding people are really excited about helping us and they come by and drop off buttons and they drop by and with cloth and all kinds of supplies that frankly they're choked by because you know our situation is like a lot of people's it's like we've just accumulated all this stuff and we're like smothering well, it. it's almost like it. blocked arteries we're right. like our, our arteries are clogged and our hallways are clogged and our closets are clogged it's like the whole country is obese not just in our flesh, but in our homes, in mm-hmm. our lifestyles. And so people are now, we're starting to kind of figure this out. It's like, and so we're trying to jettison some of this stuff, and they're realizing, oh, my God, the beer horse, they actually make stuff out of this. And so it's sort of like, so it isn't just drop it off at the Salvation Army, it's drop it off at the beer horse house. And so a little bit of it, it's some more work for us because we have to go through things and, and then decide sort. what you want. Right. But it's been really neat how people are starting to drop off things and then it becomes much more relational, too, because we can say, God, thanks for these buttons. You know, this is so great. Right. So we don't go to Michael's. Michael's kind of comes to us now. So it was. it's great that you do invite the public yeah. into your space. And you do this three times a year officially where you right. have your open spontaneously, studio. Spontaneously, Rick will have right. an open studio on a Saturday, maybe. But three times a year, we actually have an open house where we, for three days, we invite the public in from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. for three days. And we sell um, things we've made. Some of it is really fine art, especially Rick's paintings. And some of it is kid art. Um, We have crafts and we have kind of a whole spectrum of 
creative stuff. And some of it is, is sales. It's like, this is us being salespeople and trying to sell things and stay solvent. Do you do the best at those shows or cause you're, you're in galleries as yeah. well, right? Well, actually right now I'm not in a okay, gallery, you're not in a gal- okay. which is kind of a new thing too. But, um, increasingly we're, we're connecting with collectors directly and okay. we're, you know, cultivating that without the gallery. But the people coming into our home in those three shows we do every four months, the first weekend of September, first weekend of December, and the first weekend of May. It's actually not the first weekend in September this year. It's the 11th. Right. Labor Day is like the first weekend. Or those are really important times because not only are we able to generate some revenue, but the people, again, that come through, there's like a whole lot going on because... Whether they can afford to buy some art at that point or not, they're come in the home, and there's just this vibe that I think they get enraptured by, mm-hmm. that there's something about this house now that that people feel like they want to do stuff. Mm-hmm. They there's like it's almost like this elixir that they they get turned on, and they and it might not even be art making. It might be we want to have some chickens in our backyard, or we want to get back to our writing or whatever it is is at the at, in their heart it's like there's this heart opening kind of thing that happens mm-hmm. when Brennan and I we were on a date once in New York City and we were out and Pearl said go on you guys go have a day and so we got on the train we went into the city and we ended up on 23rd Street and on 23rd Street we happened on the Chelsea Hotel and it was like wow it's the Chelsea that's like where Janis Joplin lived and Mark Twain lived and Dylan Thomas and like all this cool stuff is happening. Let's like, and we're like, and this guy saw us kind of like. We were said, in the lobby. Yeah, he's hey, you want a tour? It's like yeah, and so he's like, well, just come with me. And he took us up to the top elevator. He said, no, make you have just take your time through. And if anybody questions you, just walking say you're down the stairwell. Say your your guest of JJ, you know. And we're walking down the stairwell. And there's this thing that happened. It's like. This is like my home. This is like my people. This is like, um, there's something electric in this environment. And I'm so turned on right now. Like, I want to live here. I can't, okay? But it's like, there's a connection I felt. And, like, I think about that because it's like, you know, we're basically, okay, we're not going to live in the in the Chelsea Hotel. <laughs> we want to create the Chelsea Hotel in Grand Rapids. We want that thing. That place where people are going to write a song, they're going to fall in love, they're going to re get reignited. That's what we want. We want to create that kind of legacy. Something happens when you walk in the house. What you've really done is you've allowed yourself to live in a sparing way that makes the art, the artwork on the wall pop off because you can actually see it. Like if I had a painting, one of your paintings in my dining room, it would be an unfortunate spot for it because people wouldn't be able to see it. Any advice for people? Because I think all of us know how to consume. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the American way these days to work hard and then buy a bunch of stuff. And that's supposed to make you happy. You guys don't do that. To get happy, you don't go to, to the store and load up on a bunch of nonsense, you know. I can say that I learned something the hard way. I'm a rug hooker, and I used to go out and get wool at the thrift stores. I literally had an attic full of wool. And I was embarrassed now because it got, it got um, moths in it. 
And I always think of that now when I feel this urge to go get some more art supplies. I think of all that wool that got infected with moths because it was really too much wool. You couldn't possibly use it all. I couldn't ever in my life. Mm -hmm. I ended up throwing like 12 garbage bags away. Oh, jeez. And literally wept and was ashamed of myself because I felt kind of gross, like... It felt almost like an illness. I think what really people need to do is find out what they like to do and make that. Now, I get all distracted by trying everything. And also, when you feel this urge to go out and buy some more craft supplies, make yourself not go and make something with what you already have. And then if you still absolutely need something, you'll mm-hmm. still need it in two yeah. weeks or something. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times you think... You need something, but really you don't, or maybe you already have it, but you can't find it. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a chronic problem for a That long. is yeah. a big problem. We even have that sometimes here. Yeah. I think there's something <laughs> that we are trying to protect ourselves. You know, um, we're trying to protect ourselves by all this stuff that we collect, and it kind of buffers us, mm-hmm. or we think it's going to. And it, it numbs us in a sense. We sometimes do fasting. Not to make a big deal out of that, but every once in a while, just maybe a day, you know. And there's this, you get really hungry, but there's also this clarity that starts to come in. And similarly, sometimes not having stuff, it actually makes room. Like it makes room in your heart. Like you might feel lonely when that person moves away or you have to give that person away. But like our borders are moving out. It's breaking my heart. Because How I'm, long have they been here? Less than a year, but they've really been here. You know right. what I mean? Well, you and live we, with them. We've yes. lived with them, and we've fallen in love with them. So now that they're leaving, there's a sadness, I feel, about the emptiness. But I remind myself, you know, I didn't even know them a year ago, and there's somebody else coming. So I think we were talking earlier about those rhythms that we see in nature, like winter, mm-hmm. when the garden looks very bare, or early spring. Being empty and the house getting empty is a frightening thing, but go ahead, feel it, sit with that, and know that things have to be empty before they get refilled, and that there's a certain flow, Mm -hmm. and your messiness right now and all that stuff, well, that's a season you're in, and you're going to be moving probably towards some Spartan sparseness. My husband really is hoping, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Well, but it's yeah. probably going to come no, and go. Come. And like even yeah. right now, we've, we're we collecting a lot of stuff. We're getting ready to build the gypsy caravan, and there's you know things beginning to accumulate. It's it's there's this you know a woman being pregnant. You know there's this uncomfortableness, and she's you know you're all that extra body weight and whatever. There's those those rhythms that we have to have. Right, because it's part of the process of. Yeah. I think artists have a tendency to see potential in everything. We're, mm-hmm. we, co- we collect curbside finds, dumpster dives. We, we can see the potential in old T-shirts that nobody wants anymore because they could be potholders, they could be hats, they could be... But you can... Rag rugs. Rag rugs. And, I mean, there's a good sense of accumulation, things you're really going to use. But there also can be a time where I think sometimes... It becomes kind of neurotic and not healthy, and and I struggle with that. Probably well, we all kind of do to some extent because yeah. you can pick up things too. You, I'm going to get coarse here, and this probably get edited out. But you got to take. A In fact, you got to take yes. more frequent. You can't just 
We, we read we read this book and it talked about at the end it was about feng shui and in the end she had this chapter on colon cleanses and she said that you really should be taking a three times a day most people are happy to do one a day and so if you use that as a metaphor for the things coming into your house things going out what's the colon of your house right is it all cluttered up it's got to you got there has to be a flow of things coming in things going out if it gets if it gets starts getting impacted, you're gonna get sick. Your house is gonna you're gonna feel crummy. And I think too that helps us too to sell our artwork too because it's like we're on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is done. You know, let other other people enjoy it. And you we know? give things away sometimes we do. too. Just, it's it's something. It's been a hard lesson for us to learn, especially me. I think I was an I am an accumulator naturally. I think it's really important lesson in our age right now and it's a really hard one for some people more than others well i think one of the things that people probably learn right away from just walking in your house is that we can get by and have a really happy and creative life without having all the things that we see on commercials you know people can find hope here in the sense that you don't need to have five cars you know one for every kid in your family you know that's well do you know what jennifer too is like like yesterday, we were going to make ice cream. We realized it's like quarter to five, and we don't have any eggs. And I thought of going next door, but I would be like asking for four eggs. That's kind of a lot. We could ask for one egg. So I didn't actually have the courage. So I shrunk down. And I actually rolled my bike over to the store and got a carton of eggs. But when you don't have everything you need, what you need is people. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're moving towards. We're moving towards a deeper community. And we all know we need it, but we don't quite know how to get there. And so if you don't have enough buttons for your project, maybe instead of going to Michael's, if you rang us up and you said, hey, you guys got any buttons? Because then we get to see you again, you know? And it's like, and then we don't even need money, you know? You trade buttons and the next time, you know, maybe you bring over a jar of jam or something. The thing that Rose is really good at is seeing what she has and making something with it already. Like these button bracelets she's making, and if she runs out of buttons, she uses beads, and when she runs out of beads, she sews on felt. And I mean, it just, it's like, what do you have? How can you use it to make something creative? A lot of artists, well, not just artists, but people who choose to live a way that's different than the mainstream, uh, the isolation and loneliness that people experience sometimes pushes them back into the mainstream because it's yeah. just very hard to be different. You know, and I'm, I'm a little bit different, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you folks are living a life that's different too. And we're different in, yeah. in differing ways. However, right. um, there's, I can relate to that whole, you know, track where you're, you might have a core group of people that you really click with, mm-hmm. but it's a smaller group. Well, I think you know, part, part of what happens with an artist's life generally, I think, that artists generally are pioneers. And if you think of like how many people were in Lewis and Clark's canoe, you know, on their expeditions, and we have a lot of romance about those trips and all the things they discovered, but I think, you know, if you think of the people that went out west, you know, and the people that stayed back in Boston, the people that, you know, pared it down to a dresser and a trunk and got that wagon and went on that trail and all the ones that died along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, those were those were trails that were opened up at great cost. And and even people like, you know, Patti Smith, who created a kind of music, they didn't even know what to call it in 1977, or, you know, David Byrne before he got popular. It was like weird, or the Ramones. You know, people that 
went out to and just were creating things and cutting open new territory, I think there's generally a lot of misunderstanding that goes along with it, and frankly, loneliness. There's a, it's not like prompt king. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more like the nerd in his basement, you know, inventing a new kind of computer, and they think he's just a jerk. You know, he's wearing the wrong kind of, he's wearing crew, crew neck sweaters or whatever. Right. And I think there's a part of that that, you know, frankly, um, that's a little bit too big of a price tag. You know, um, sometimes. And so one of the things we have to do around here really is we have to really work at, you know, reason I put that open studio is I get lonely and I want people to come in. Right. I want to share it with them. Like the kid, when you came to kindergarten and said, look, you know, butterfly. I've never outgrown that. I still Me like show my projects. Oh, yeah. 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 And I mean, so yeah. It's, it's sort of off in that weird <laughs> space you can end up. You still want to pull in people. So we have potlucks at our house. We invite people over a lot and realize it's hard to invite the beer horse family over because it's like having the circus over. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's like a lot yeah, of people. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of, you know, pony up to that and just we make a lot of phone calls and invite people over because we need to keep bringing people in for us to stay right. connected right. so we're not just kind of enmeshed in our own weirdness and cut off well and it's harder too when you gave up your car you lived in were you living in brooklyn yeah yeah, yeah. so there's public transportation right in west michigan you just don't have that no. same <laughs> it's not as easy to get around here without a car but um fortunately this is a pretty walkable yeah, the part you're living in is definitely yeah, this, yeah. And which is why we chose it. But I want to make sure that we tell people about what you guys are planning to do because as a family and with some friends as well, you're going to compete yeah. in the first international art prize competition <laughs> here in Grand Rapids. You have kind of a home court advantage, along with other artists, are going to be competing right. from West Michigan because you're familiar with the territory. Why don't you tell me what you're going to be doing? We're building a gypsy style caravan. We've got an Amish buggy base, which we took the cab off and just got the wheels, and we're going to be building a caravan on top of that, along with Cameron Van Dyke, who's going to he's going to kind of construct it so it you know doesn't like fall apart. <laughs> so what's going to happen in that buggy? Will it be pulled by people or by? We haven't decided whether it could be pulled by people. It might be pulled by a couple tandem bikes that are welded together, or we actually may um, bring in somebody to with a horse and harness to pull okay. it in because we want to create. A processional when we bring our 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 the beer horse wonder wagon is what we're calling it down to its open venue, yeah. which uh, we haven't settled on which um, park it's going to be in, but we want an outdoor park where we can create a um, really not just the wagon but an encampment with um, with tents, somewhat like you might have uh, on the lawn of the of the restaurant where they do weddings. You know, you see those tents mm-hmm. where we can. In case it rains, and just to have shelter, because the wagon itself will be won't be that big. But we want to during that week, that first week, to have events where other mus- you know, where musicians can perform and poets can share their poetry. So we're kind of creating a small, and in a way, a small art festival within the competition. Within the competition, because mm-hmm. we didn't want to just go someplace and hang my paintings on the wall in a gallery. We felt like. Art Prize is kicking the doors way open, right, so let's really goes. conceptualize here. <laughs> and we felt, well, we've been doing these things in our home. If we 
put it on wheels in a sense and then become the host to create a little event within an event mm-hmm. that not only draws people to share what we have in our wa- wagon, the artwork and so forth. Yeah, but the wagon will have our family art in it. Right. So is the wagon going to be big enough for people to actually go into Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And so will there art be art being made on the wagon? There will be art within the wagon, all fairly small scale, but paintings and the, the things that we we do will be in the wagon. So it'll be like a mobile art gallery okay. meets gypsy wagon. Okay. Um, but then there will be other art and events going on within this kind of encampment that we build for that week. And <clears throat> perhaps if we get in the winter's circle a second week. Yeah, so we're, we're putting have, together like, team workshops. You know, we're going to teach people how to make woodblock prints, and you know, we haven't decided, you know, exactly what kind of stuff we're going to do yet. But it's will this be, be free really for cool. people? Yeah, yeah it's be. totally free. Just you know, how wonderful! <laughs> yeah, yeah, you want people to. So, and, and at stake here for people who don't know, I mean, this is is the top. The top prize is how much? Two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Which which is. What would you What would you do with well, that? Well, our friend Danny Gregory in New York, when we did the show in New York in May, he said, "You guys get that prize, it's going to ruin you." <laughs> well, that's kind of my question here. It's like, okay, if suddenly you guys go from living bare you bones, would pay off the house because the mortgage every month is probably oh the big biggest challenge. anxiety we we deal with. Scraping the money together Just to make like, another mortgage payment. Packing it in. Well, and all the other thing is, is we're we're not alone. We're building a team to do this, so, so, it, so wouldn't it wouldn't all be, go to us anyway. We yes. would be splitting this money up, and um, we really want to, you know, reward the the people that are volunteering and working with us. Yes, um, definitely. And frankly, Jennifer, the money is not the biggest. It, it, you know, even though that was kind of t- that's what Rick kind of tossed out. Well, for some people, that is going to be what it takes yeah, to get someone flying from Sweden or something. Sure, there's, it's a motivator. I mean, it's going to be exciting. Well, I, think I, that's I, I can't wait. Yeah, to, to see what wait. happens because mm-hmm. um, we don't have to... I mean, this is a pl- thing I'd like to go... I, I'd be tempted to try to go visit in another oh, city sure. because it's so exciting to, to hear... I mean, just to think about who, who might be coming to these... Oh, yeah. um, to this competition, so um, it'll be really interesting to see, you know, what the field looks like, and and I, yeah, I don't have any doubt that um, if you guys win, I don't think you're gonna start, you know, wearing uh, rhinestone encrusted uh, <laughs> blazers or right. anything. Prada shoes. <laughs> that would freak me out a little bit. <laughs> the the money actually it can be kind of problematic if you think about it. I think the the biggest motivation we have for our price is. It's getting art into places where art usually doesn't go. It's mm-hmm. getting people working together that ordinarily wouldn't work together. There's this real kind of like stirring the drink, kind of catalytic thing that's happening. And frankly, I really think Grand Rapids is never going to be the same. I think there's a artists are starting to be taken more seriously here. We're, we're tr- Grand Rapids is transitioning from a city that tolerates artistic visionary people to a city that celebrates them. And that's mm-hmm. what Art Prize is about. It's about celebrating that creative impulse, which isn't all that. It's a kissing cousin to the entrepreneurial impulse. Oh, yeah. And bringing you- those things together, which is why you see companies like Absolute Vodka and Kohler, um. Uh. That that uh, the mint the the distinguishable mint. What is that mint? Eltoids. Oh yeah. Those companies that have this artistic flair have really become profitable too because they've welded that kind of creativity with with good business. And I think that's part of what could happen in Grand Rapids is we're in a place where we're trying to we're in Michigan and we're trying to. What's on the other side of the automobile industry? Well, we need artists are. 
problem solvers for God's sake. They should be part of that conversation. They should be at the at the board meetings, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's going to be really interesting, and I wish you guys the best of luck. You know, I'm going to have to... Um... I know I'm going to probably be spending a lot of time in the tent, especially if you're going to be teaching people how to make prints. Yeah. I, want to, I want to learn how to do that. I think maybe the only thing I would say is that a lot of art making, whether you're a dancer or a, a musician or a painter or a weaver, is in our culture is pressed right away into becoming a commodity. you got to sell your CD to be really official, like real. And I, I think that, I think we need to move beyond that. I think there needs to be like, you know, that time, I, maybe that didn't, time didn't exist, but I kind of think there was this time where everybody gathered in the parlor and sang around the piano and like everybody owned it. Like it was for everybody and you didn't have to have a record contract to be a mu- real musician. Right. It was like grandma sang, you know, and papa sang bass and however that song goes. <laughs> I feel like if we could somehow meander back to that time where it wasn't just about selling a CD or selling a painting where everybody had permission to make stuff. It wasn't just the realm of professionals. Like I really feel like we would like to try to migrate back to that place. And maybe part of us, the folksiness of being a family is like, you know, kids can do this and old folks can do it. It's like, you know, if you're 70, you can still start a rock band, you know? Yeah, more power to the 70-year-old that starts a rock band. Yeah. Well, I think that what, another thing that's really interesting about what you guys do here is, I mean, you're painting sell for thousands. Yeah. You know, and you're doing, um, it's oil that you work with, right? Right. You make these wonderful paintings, and um, I want to give you a chance, too, to describe your work. We'll put some images on the website okay. so, you know, or link to you sure. so people can see, but how would you describe your paintings? My work is, it's figurative, and it's narrative. The narratives aren't clear, they're animatic, like, like the narratives that come up in poems, you're not sure what it means, but you're pulled in to a question and a pondering. So the paintings also are have a kinship with icons, so they invite uh, a sort of meditative looking, like music that has drones, like if you listen to Sufi Indian music. It's a music that invites a sort of otherworldly connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 ultimately the paintings are accessible though because they're still they're they're images they're mm-hmm. image based they're connected to art history there's a lot of connecting points that everybody has mm-hmm. so it's not like you know trying to read art forum magazine you know where it's this real private esoteric language right they're accessible I mean a lot of people and kids can get them but also you know a museum creator curator or art critic there's some stuff that they can write about well and and you use your children i use the children as models a lot which is another kind of way to loop back into the family and frankly they're available right yeah it's it saves you (laughs) for a sucker you know know, little kids model for for an hour for for a a sucker and that might be one um, sucker is that how many bits it takes that might be child abuse i'm not (laughs) sure but but actually, sometimes when a painting sells for thousands of dollars and one of the kids pose for it, there may be some kickback to them, too, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, that, yeah. And, and again, they there's this investment that as they get older, they start to realize that 
we're all in this together. If right. Dad it's succeeds, we succeed. If right. Mom succeeds, if Rose succeeds, if Pearl, Shepherd, you know, it's we're all in this together. And I think that's what families were are supposed to be. So I think it's wonderful the message that you're sending out. That you know, just make what you can make. Right. And um, start where you are. Yeah. I got an email from somebody in Australia today who went to the website and felt encouraged, which is encouraging to me that somebody's mm-hmm. sharing that they were yeah. encouraged. And she said, she was saying that, you know, I'm beginning more and more to realize that this is a process. Art making is a process. It's it's never ending. And she said, I'm I'm enchanted by that. You know, that there's this kind of almost infinity that you're entering into that which is again takes you back to the mystical or otherworldly component of this is that you're tapping into something endless and that art making you your paintings never really done you know your house remodeling job is never really complete we're never really complete and so there's this you know we don't want this to ever end so it sounds like people can uh trust that you're probably not going to run out at any point and get a job working doing whatever I mean, you're, you're in this yeah and we're in this um thick and thin you know whether we have the house or we don't have the house because we feel a calling to this you know that goes really really deep and now there's a lot of history of thin times and thick times so we're not that little sapling blowing in the wind anymore. <laughs> it's got a lot more stature and yeah. the roots are running deeper because we've weathered so many things. We weathered the going to New York and having to come back because we ran out of money. We've weathered a lot of failure. And that's the other thing too, Jennifer, is that you've got to get comfortable with failure. You've got to get comfortable with looking like an <laughs> because everybody, everybody who's made a fortune, I think, has gone through bankruptcy a few times, too, because I've read those books, too. You know? <laughs> I've read those finance books, and yeah. I know the Susie Ormans of the world and all their you know, hard luck stories of when they kind of hit the bottom. That success is, on the other side of the coin, is failure. And as an artist, you know, a lot of your pieces are duds, you know, and some of them end up in the wood stove. That's a part of it. It doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means... You know, it's like DuPont and all those companies, you know, (laughs) they've got, you know, there are R&D departments. There's lots of failure. There's lots of adhesives that never make it, you know. So that's part for us, too. Failure. Get comfortable with it. I agree. I just, it's funny in many ways that we're getting a lot of people interested in looking at us. And it, it is, it can be kind of a little bit heady, you know, with, intoxicating. wow, intoxicating, wow, you know. The thing is, is, you know, the sacrifices you make for living a life that is alternative, you know, those are the things that kind of are unseen. Whatever standard you use to, to measure success, it, it's different for different people, you know. Um, we really feel blessed to be able to live like this, to, to wake up in the morning and decide what we want to do today. It's like a miracle every day. And there's also the <laughs> faith that we have that if we're faithful to do what God wants us to do, he's going to provide for us. A lot of people can't live that way because... It's kind of like believing the unseen. It's It can be terrifying at times, and it also can be very satisfying. 
it's just a way of life that is natural to us, but it's only become natural because we've weathered it so long. I was at a junk store yesterday, and I went there later in the day, and I took the um, two little girls and Shepard with me, and had a lot of really cool stuff. Antique store, you mm -hmm. know, vintage clothes. And I was just just getting to know the guy who's uh, the new guy who's working there, and I pulled these cap this cabinet door, and I said, "How much are these doors?" He had three of them, and he said, "Oh, five dollars each." Each. And I went there with I, there's no money I can spend, and I knew that going there. It's like. He could have said they're $100. It doesn't matter because I can't afford them. And I said, oh, so they're really nice. And then like a few minutes later, I said, you know what? You can just have them. I got a feeling you're going to make something really cool out of them. I just met this guy. And I started to cry. Like, and it threw him off. Like, oh. And the guy's like, okay, I just gave this guy three cabinet doors. And he's But crying. the thing like, is, is I really wanted these doors right, badly. And I right. knew I couldn't afford them. And so I gave them up. I was like, well, they're nice, but I can't have them. And then he gave them to me. Yeah. And it just tripped my heart. My heart just like, whoa. You know, it was like, I just felt really loved by this guy. Yeah. And then he, I think, you know, we had a connection then. So there's a certain thing about hunger. There's a certain thing about, it's not just this, the cliche. I mean, it's, there's real. It's like when you're really hungry for something and you get it, there's an appreciation. You know, the people who just beat off cancer and they feel so alive, you know, and they oh, don't yeah. care if their butt's too big for the skirt. <laughs> it's like they're beyond that kind of thinking. <laughs> they're so far beyond that. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's sort of like, okay, who wants to go through that, that corridor of, you know, suffering? But the truth is, when you get, there is this kind of appreciation that's quickened. And so it's like, oh, you know, I love this door is going to become something really cool. I'm not sure what, yeah, if it's going to be a painting or a cabinet or what. Yeah, I'm going to take a it. picture of you with this door because people are going to want to see. It's the doorway this amazing, of opportunity. This $5 door that you cry. Yeah. yeah. But no, I mean, I think that's a beautiful story because it really kind of encapsulates um, if you're walking around without tons of spending cash and you see things you want and you. You know, yeah. have to let it's it go. been really weird this past month. We have been really poor, like seriously, like maybe twenty bucks for groceries for eight family, uh, eight people family for a week. So it's like, how, how do you, what do you do when you're twenty dumpster bucks for groceries? We're dumpster diving, pretty heavy duty, and we're also gleaning. We the blackberries are in season right now. Cherries, mulberries are in season. Mm -hmm. um, so we're gleaning, and um, uh, and we would people, never let the kids starve. I'm and people, people are, oh, and yeah, and I don't. People I've been are, here many times, yeah. and any no one was like got curled in. Plenty of food, yeah. we, and people are dropping off. Yeah, what food. I was gonna say is, you know, it's amazing we're going through this, but we've been getting so much free food lately, just in weird ways. It's not like people feel sorry for us or something, but like we've just been like getting these weird, just coincidences. Well, like t somebody dropped food. off two bags, probably about four pounds each, sour cherries and tart cherries. And the, I didn't recognize him, and he didn't stop to say hello. Somebody, I came home, and the kids were eating spaghetti. I was like, what? Because I knew I didn't make it. It's like, yeah, somebody dropped off spaghetti, and, uh, and it was really good spaghetti, too. It was like... Warm and, like... Pesto. Oh, it was already made. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the best kind of spaghetti, I mean, right? You, know, you don't have to wonderful. make it. And uh, a guy two days ago dropped off a bunch of uh, really good bread, and so it's just kind of showing up, like we were talking about. It's maybe it's sort of like you know you build a field and they'll come. There's this sort of like what you were talking about the universe working with you, or however you want it, how whatever, however you want to couch that, whatever language right. you want to use. Right. We have a need, the needs are met. And that's part of it, too, you know? It's like, 
we're used to, you work really hard. And that was something that my dad did give me this. You work really, really hard. You know, he lived through the occupation in, in the Netherlands and all this stuff. And you work hard. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And there's part of that that's true. You do work hard. And you don't want to just be parasitic on people. Right. But there's this other part where it's like you work hard, but even that's not good enough. Because you've been drawn into something that's impossible. And this is the God thing. I feel like God calls people to do things they can't do. Oops. You know, Moses, pull the people out of Egypt. Great. Well, now they're in the desert, dude. <laughs> right. Like, what are you supposed to feed them? And now you've got the Red Sea. You've got the the, the, the um, Egyptians decided they want them back. And they're coming down with chariots and lots of really good weapons. Red Sea. And you've got a stick. Right. And God got you into this thing. What are you going to do now? And I don't think that's just a Bible story. That is the the crucible that we live in. And the magic of it is the food shows up. And you go, how did this happen? Or yeah. they bring kids to your Kendall students here and say, how do you make a living as an artist? And you go, well, you know what? Move in with us for a month and we'll sh answer that question. Because I cannot explain that to you. This right. is like... You know, trying to explain an E.E. E. Cummins poem. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It works. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it works. Okay, so that's one heck of a story, isn't it? I really enjoyed getting a chance to meet the Beer Horse and hear their story and be inspired by them and wish them well in their art prize journey that they're on. And I will be able to tell you a little more about Art Prize because I, I haven't figured out what I'm going to do to cover it, like how exactly I'm going to do this with the podcast because there's... Oh my goodness, there's hundreds of artists coming from all over the place. It's I feel like I'm probably going to need to breathe into a paper bag as I'm walking around town because I'm really excited about how cool this is going to be to see so much art. And it's going to be hard to see it all, but man, I'm going to be going every day to see art. It's going to be fantastic. So if you're in the Grand Rapids area, in West Michigan, obviously you're going to benefit from this. If you're not, this might be a good time to plan a trip to West Michigan. So I'll have a link to Art Prize. I'll have a link to the Beer Horse and everything they're doing so you can check that all out online. Okay, I want to take an opportunity here to say thank you to my sponsors. Uh, thank you so much, ladies. I really appreciate it. Nostalgems has sponsored previous episodes, and I really appreciate the support of this small business. And the great thing about Nostalgems is not only does Nostalgem sponsor me, they also are in the habit of giving away jewelry kits and this is this episode is going to be no different the folks over at nostalgiums are giving away a cameo pendant kit to 10 lucky craft sanity listeners we'll have the link over at craftsanity.com to get you to the nostalgiums facebook page where you can enter the contest by simply leaving a comment about what you think about this pendant kit and the contest is going to end august 28th in the meantime, you can shop for Nostalgiums Vintage Inspired Jewelry over at nostalgiums.etsy.com or nostalgiums.co.nz. I'd also like to thank Marianne Loverm at Wabi Sabi Brooklyn for sponsoring this episode of Craft Sanity. I really appreciate it. Uh, head over to her shop to see these really cool, she takes pennies and coins and decoupages them and really transforms these everyday elements that we have in our pockets and the bottom of our purse into these really precious jewelry pieces. So go check that out. I think you're going to enjoy it. Again, you can find Marianne's creations at wabisabibrooklyn.etsy.com. Thanks again, ladies. I really appreciate your support. 
And if you'd like to sponsor an upcoming episode of Craft Sanity, we'd love to hear from you. It's become more necessary <laughs> for me to have sponsorship. So I really appreciate the fact that there are people that are sponsoring this podcast. It really means a lot to me. So thank you so much. You can click on the sponsors link on the website and you can get some basic information there. Uh, we keep it pretty simple and cost is pretty cheap. So um, head over there and check it out. And then uh, you'll likely be in contact with Jeff, my husband. He is the person who kind of keeps everything running with the advertising. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to help you promote your handmade business. So keep us in mind when you're looking to get the word out about what you do and what you make. So with that said, talked way too much in this episode my word clearly i'm missing some of the social interactions that come with being in an office oh boy well anyway i have plenty to do i have lots of clutter to clean up and lots of projects to get back to work on so i'm gonna get back to that in the meantime craft sanity my friends it works for me mm-hmm.